0: Turn with me to John chapter 15. John 15, we'll read verses 1 through 11 together. John 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burnt. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. and It will be done for you. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to You so that my joy may be in You and that Your joy may be made full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your care, for Your love. We thank You for the beautiful imagery which has provided us in Your Word. Jesus, thank You for the metaphor that you provide us here in this text. And I pray that this would be planted in our hearts and minds and useful not only today, but in the days to come. May you be honored, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Well, as we continue our Harmony of the Gospels this morning, Jesus and His disciples have just left the upper room where they had celebrated the Last Supper. Jesus said at the end of chapter 14 in John's gospel, arise, let us go from here. Now, this very evening is the one in which Jesus will be betrayed and he'll be arrested. He has a mere few hours left with his disciples before that occurs. And Jesus makes the most of that time by giving a farewell discourse to these men. They'll prepare them for the coming days. Many of us are very familiar with John fifteen, especially these first eleven verses of John fifteen. It's a passage that's often memorized by Christians. And the challenge of texts like these is making sure that we don't become lethargic due to our familiarity with the material. I think it's appropriate, even here at the outset, that each one of us ask the Lord to give us, grant us new perspective and fresh perspective and an attentive mind. And a softened heart, so we'll hear verses that might be very familiar to us, but hear them afresh and anew. We're in need of this reminder, just as much as the disciples were in need of it when Jesus shared it with them. Now, if we're looking for a main point in this text, it appears that we could get to that just by the word choice alone. That could settle the matter. The word abide or remain or dwell, it's variously translated in different translations, but abide, remain, dwell, live, that word in Greek happens some over ten times in these eleven verses. Jesus is asking his disciples, both then and now, where is it that you dwell? Where do you live? Where is your dwelling? So that's the question that's before us this morning Where do you dwell? Where do you live? Where is home for you? And how does where you live impact how you live? How does where you live impact how you live? This is no small question. And the answer to this question is more than just words can give. Just providing a word answer to this is not sufficient The answer to the question must go beyond words to ongoing practice. In asking the question, where do you live, the only way we can truly answer it is by living where we're supposed to live. Not just answering where we're supposed to live, but by living where we're supposed to live. We must go far beyond knowing the answer. We must go to living the answer. For a Christian's dwelling place impacts no less then these three things, we'll talk about them this morning, where you dwell, where you live, will impact your fruitfulness. Where you live, where you dwell, will impact your confidence. And where you live and where you dwell will impact your joy. Your fruitfulness, your confidence, and your joy will, are directly correlated. There's a direct implication and impact that comes from where you dwell. A Christian's dwelling place impacts his or her fruitfulness, his or her confidence, especially in prayer, and his or her joy. Now we know that ultimately the answer for every Christian is that the earth is not our home. This earth has been subjected to corruption as a result of the fall, the entrance of sin into mankind, into the world. And so God's plan for his people is ultimately to take them home. And home is not here. Here. Home is to be with Him forever. Those dying before Jesus' return means them going to heaven for to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But even that place, the place of heaven where those who are dead now go, is not their final place or home. It's just an intermediate place. As ultimately one day when Jesus returns and all of history is brought to culmination, ultimately all Christians will dwell with Jesus in the new heavens and new earth, will be given resurrected bodies. That is where our citizenship is. For that reason, right now we're merely aliens or strangers or pilgrims here on earth. But if earth right now is not our home, where do we dwell presently? We know where we're going to dwell in the new heavens and new earth. If you're in Christ, that's where you're ultimately going to dwell. That's where ultimately home is. But what does a Christian do now? if we're just aliens and pilgrims and strangers on this earth, how do we live? Where do we live? Where do we dwell? What is it that ultimately makes something home? you thought through that question? What makes something home? Is it a building? Or is it people? Is it based on geography? Or is it based on relationship. This question was forever settled for me in the aftermath of my parents' divorce and the subsequent foreclosure that happened on the house that we had in Kingwood. My mom was forced to find an apartment in the Humble area, a name appropriate, because where we went to was a very humble abode. The apartment was quite small. We were absolutely cramped, especially when you considered that we went from a home in Kingwood that was fairly large. A few months later, my mom would be able to receive a slight upgrade within the same apartment complex, but regardless of the size of the space that we were in or the quality of the building, home, for me, was where my mom was. My brother and I felt cared for and loved and nurtured and encouraged wherever the Lord would provide a place for us to live with mom. And while the circumstances of my dad's leaving were not something that any of us would have asked for, I see how the Lord worked through those circumstances to instill in all three of our lives a great deal of spiritual lessons. And I definitely learned through that on a physical level, I can make a connection to a spiritual one. Home is not so much a matter of place as it is a matter of relationship, as it is a matter of fellowship, as it is a matter of community. This is fitting for us to think about as we don't know what's going to happen with City Hall next door and with our land and the road and all that stuff. We're kind of in a big holding pattern trying to see what's going to happen. We're not exactly sure how this is all going to play itself out. But one thing I know, our family is not tied to this location. Should we need to move? We'll go together and we'll trust the Lord's provision for a new location to be our New place of gathering. You've heard it said before, home is where the heart is. Perhaps the Christian response that Jesus gives us here in John 15 is, home is where the Lord is. Home is where the Lord is. And Jesus reminds us of this very thing through providing and then unpacking an agricultural analogy. He makes a metaphor, makes use of a metaphor from the realm of agriculture to help us understand this a little bit better. This morning, going to real simple, two points are very, very simple that I want to walk through the text with. The first is we're going to consider the metaphor. And then second of all, we'll consider the message. Seemed fitting since we're we'll be talking about the master and his message. This morning, we'll talk about the metaphor and Jesus' message. And in coming family camp, we'll be talking about the master and his message. Point number one, the metaphor. Let's spend a few moments... Understanding, first of all, if we are to understand some spiritual application, we first have to come to grips with what metaphor Jesus is setting up. What are the main elements of this metaphor? Well, first is the vine. Here's the last of the I am statements in John's gospel. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Note, true vine. I am the true vine. That word true kind of makes you wonder, well, in reference to what is Jesus referring? If he just said, I am the vine, we'd have one thing. But he says, I am the true vine. Perhaps this is a contrast to the reference to Israel that's made throughout the Old Testament. God often refers to Israel as his vine. As a choice plant. A vine that was afforded every privilege. We had a couple of those passages read this morning. Isaiah 5. It comes out, the prophet Isaiah says, let me sing a song of my well-beloved. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. So off off this song goes, and it sounds so beautiful and wonderful. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. He removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it, and he expected it to produce good grapes. But Israel fails to live up to its privileges and blessings. So this very metaphor, not only in Isaiah 5, but in other places as well, is used to describe Israel's failure to produce good fruit and the fact that God is bringing judgment as a result. Again, Isaiah 5 verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce good Worthless ones. Then he says in verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, all he saw was bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but all he saw was a cry of distress. Just to show you that this theme continues throughout the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2.21, we have this statement, Yet I planted you a choice vine a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Hosea 10, verse 1 and 2. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt the Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. You can also look these up later on. Check out Ezekiel 15 and Ezekiel 17. Again, you'll see the repeated theme. Israel is likened unto a vine. And they are given every blessing, every privilege. And then God says, I looked to see good fruit. All that I got was worthless fruit. rottenness fruit. And as a result... I'm coming to bring judgment. Now, in contrast to Israel's barrenness, Jesus brings forth the fruit that Israel lacked. Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, Jesus is everything that Israel never was. Jesus also in John's Gospel is referred to as the true light, in contrast to, B- to John the Baptist, who is a lamp, but he's not the true light coming into the world. He's also referred to as the true bread, unlike the manna which came down from heaven for the Israelites while they're in the wilderness, which allowed them to eat for a day and but then die out in the wilderness. Jesus brings a spiritual bread that results in eternal life. You see, the manna is a shadow of the greater bread. Jesus, the true bread from heaven, the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, the place which God dwelled, just a shadow, just a picture of the true reality. Jesus, the true tabernacle, Jesus, the true temple. He was not merely the shadow of God's presence. He was God incarnate, God in the flesh dwelling amongst his people. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of and better than the temple. He's the fulfillment and better than the Jewish feasts. He's the fulfillment and better than the holy days, the prophets, the priests, the kings. He is the true prophet. He is the true priest. He is the true king. Here we see that Jesus is also the fulfillment of all that Israel was meant to be. He is the true vine because he is true Israel. Here's a great example. We can look at numerous ones, but here's a really good one. Remember at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he goes out into the wilderness, right? Where he fasts for many days. And while he's out in the wilderness, he is tempted by Satan. Jesus, in response to Satan's temptations, continues to quote from Deuteronomy. So fascinating. Israel, while out in the wilderness fail at the temptation. When the temptations come, they follow after false gods. They complain that they're not getting you know, enough water, not getting water, or they're, they they complain about the manna after a while. They're complaining and murmuring and disgruntled about everything. Where Israel fell in the temptations in their wilderness experience, Jesus succeeded. He is the true vine. And then when you read Psalm 80, I don't know how, you, you know. knowing what we know now, living on this side of Jesus' advent, you read Psalm 80. So fascinating. I'm going to start in verse 14. Oh God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see, and take care of this vine. See, you hear the psalmist, he's crying out to God, please turn back to us. Look down upon us. Be merciful toward us. Be gracious towards us. You've removed your blessing from us because we were... Evil and rebellious, you've brought judgment our way. Now the psalmist is pleading with God, please show us mercy and grace and compassion. Look down from heaven and see, take care of this vine. We are still your vine, O God. Take care of us. Even the shoot which your right hand is planted and on the Son whom you have strengthened for yourself. It's burned with fire. The vine is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Then listen to verse 17. Let Your hand be upon the man of Your right hand, upon the Son of Man whom You made strong for Yourself. Then we shall not turn back from You. Revive us and we will call upon Your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause Your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. There's a longing here for God to show mercy and love and compassion towards Israel. They're longing for this. And in the midst of this longing, there's a desire that the Son of Man, whom He has made strong for Himself, should come. That there be revival. That there be restoration. That God's face now look upon His people and shine upon them. And that this would result in their salvation. You see, Jesus says, I am the true vine. I'm all that Israel was ever supposed to be. I succeeded where Israel failed. And the only way to be truly restored and put in right terms with God is to be connected to me. To be connected with me, the true vine. It's not by your birth or descent from Abraham by which you are saved. It's by your connection with me that you're saved. Your fruitfulness isn't by obeying laws in the Old Testament. It's by being connected to me. There's the real lifeblood of this. And certainly from being connected to me, that obedience will then flow. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was meant for Israel. Rather than a rebellious people and nation, Jesus is the true Son of God, God's true, chosen, and precious vine. In Isaiah 5, God looked for fruit of justice and righteousness, but but found it lacking in Israel. But when he looks at Jesus, he finds it perfectly. Jesus perfectly fulfilled what God desired. He revealed the character of God in His words and in His acts. Tasker said it this way, Jesus is what God had called Israel to be, but what Israel, in fact, had never become. Israel had been an imperfect foreshadowing of what was found to perfection in Jesus. (laughs) This is what's so amazing about our God. is When He sees a lack in His people, He then provides it. Because He knows we could never drum it up from within ourselves. God provides what's lacking in us. So now to be part of God's chosen vine, you must be rightly related to Jesus. Only those abiding in Him will be fruitful as God intended for them to be. And being the true vine, He is the only vine. He alone is our only source of spiritual sustenance. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is, you might have their, vine dresser. We're literally farmer. My father is the farmer. For some reason, we don't normally think of farming grapes. So we say things like vine dresser or like the word gardener. God, the father, is the gardener. We're told of a couple of things that he's engaged in doing. First of all, every branch in Jesus not bearing fruit is taken away, we're told in the first part of verse 2. The Father removes dead weight from the vine. Any branch that's not producing fruit is removed. What fruit is he looking for? That's a good question. What does it mean to be someone who produces fruit? What fruit is God the Father looking for? Well, there's several different categories of things we could talk about. The fruit could be seen in repentance towards God because of their sin and faith in Jesus Christ. The fruit could be seen in holiness of life and conduct. Fruit can be seen in evangelistic fervor and souls being saved. Fruit can be seen in deeds of charity towards the needy. Fruit can be seen in transformed values and attitudes, the internal desires and attitudes of the heart. Fruit can be seen in speech that's been seasoned with grace. Fruit can be connected with the fruit of the Spirit that Galatians 5 speaks of. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And self-control. Jesus probably means to include all of these. For all of these, fruit are a result of the relationship that one has when they are in the vine. Now, Jesus says that his father, the gardener, removes every branch that does not bear fruit. Every non-fruit-bearing branch will be sorted out by the father. No dead branch will be allowed to persist for long. For it's obvious by its lack of fruit that it's not connected to the vine. For every branch connected to the vine produces fruit. Certainly the quintessential example of this in the present context would be Judas. Judas Iscariot. Outwardly, he was indistinguishable from the other apostles. So much so that when Jesus is sitting at the last supper, this is just... A few weeks ago we talked about this. Jesus is sitting at the table. He says, one of you at this very table is going to betray me. And remember, all the disciples are looking around going, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Nobody's like pointing the finger. It's Judas Iscariot. No one's doing that. He appears to be a branch attached to the vine. But there was no fruit from this man. The examples, though, can go further beyond just Judas Iscariot. Example of a dead branch, a branch that is supposedly in the vine, but it is not at all because there is no fruit. It can extend to everyone who's been dunked in water, but not truly baptized into Christ. It can extend to everyone who has joined a local church, but not united to Christ and therefore not truly a member of his church. This, this would apply to everyone who argues theology, but doesn't love God. This applies to everyone who makes an outward profession yet lacks inward confession and repentance of sin and lacks faith, belief, love of Jesus. Anyone can walk an aisle. Anyone can raise a hand. Anyone can repeat words after someone else. Sometimes these dead branches will be exposed in this life. 1 John 2 describes that those went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. This is not just a problem for the church down the road. It's one we have to come to grips with as our own congregation. In any church, the possibility exists that there are dead branches Branches that are loosely affiliated or connected with Jesus, but there is no real true heart change and there is no genuine fruit produced because they're not connected to the vine. No matter what, all of these will be exposed at the end. Matthew 3.12 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, Matthew 25 says, all the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Now, let me just quickly note that there are some that take this Greek word translated here as takes away. Those who do not bear any fruit, he takes away. Some have translated this alternatively as lifts up. And if you translate it that way, it kind of puts a whole different spin on that phrase. For those who say that what the father's picture is doing here is he's taking branches that aren't producing any fruit and he lifts them up. In this case, the act, act is one that a vine dresser, where they're picking up a branch off of the ground in order to allow its blossoms to germinate. In such cases, the vine would be placed on top of sticks or on top of stones or if they'd even made a trellis and put it on it. But they're positioning the branch in a different fashion such that now it will produce fruit. If this is intended by Jesus, what he's saying here instead would be that the Father is responsible for placing branches in such a position that they bear fruit. Because some say that this whole idea that there are branches in Jesus that aren't bearing fruit would mean that maybe they're losing their salvation. What does that mean? And Certainly that's what the Scriptures teach. I think Jesus' point here is to say that there are those who outwardly appear to be in Christ, but they are in reality not in Christ. And how do you know that they're not in Christ? Because they're fruitless. Every branch in Christ bears fruit. And so if the branch is fruitless, it's not in Christ. Jesus continues, every branch bearing fruit is pruned to bear even more fruit. So the father is pruning the fruit-bearing branches that they might be more fruitful. Now, the pruning mentioned here could be translated trimming, but it also can be translated cleansing, which causes an interesting other situation here. Colin Cruz points out that there are four operations that were typically done even in the type of fine pruning where you're cutting things. There are four different reasons why... a vine dresser might do that. They might remove growing tips of vigorous shoots so that they won't grow too rapidly. They might cut one or two feet from the end of a growing shoot to prevent the entire shoot from being snapped off by the wind. They might remove some flower or grape cluster so that those that are left might produce more and better quality fruit. That's often what is done today, right? You pick off the fruits that are kind of small and scrawny so you can give more of the sap, more of the energy into the fruit that look better. And then a fourth one is removing suckers that arose from below the ground that might be, again, taking strength of the vine instead. But as a gardener will go to great lengths to help a vine put forth its best production, the picture here is this, that the father is engaged in that. In his wisdom, he's placing us where we need to be, and he's provided the, providing the right resources for his children to be really fruitful. Couple of examples. You know, a farmer might need to change the conditions surrounding a plant. He might even transplant it to a new area. So does our Heavenly Father. Sometimes He plants His children in another part of the world to shine as a light in a dark place that they might be more fruitful. It's not that they're not producing fruit now, but now He's going to change up their circumstances to create more fruitfulness for them. So He might literally move them to somewhere else in the world in order to shine as a light in a dark place and to result in greater fruitfulness. A farmer might also have to protect a plant from harmful pests. And so, as as such, our Heavenly Father might have to remove some spiritual diseases from us, perhaps some false theology that we believed, or some selfish desires, or maybe even in in the situation of harmful people that are around us. Sometimes you might have to remove some of those things which are having wrongful effect on our lives and are decreasing our fruitfulness. Sometimes it's painful. A farmer might need to trim off some unproductive appendages. So the Father, our heavenly Father might have to remove some luxuries that are distracting us. Why? Because he's concerned about our fruitfulness and perhaps some of our fruitfulness is being decreased because of Excess stuff around our life. Or perhaps He's going to put us through a trial which will have a long-term effect of strengthening us. The short term sounds really strange and weird to us. It doesn't make sense. But our Father, in His wisdom, is using it for His good purpose. J.C. Ryle says, Trial, to speak plainly, is the instrument by which our Father in Heaven makes Christians more holy by trial, He weans them from the world. He draws them to Christ. He drives them to the Bible in prayer. He shows them their own hearts, and He makes them humble. Our trials are not meant to do us harm, but good. And I know sometimes in the middle of the trial, sometimes we have a hard time seeing that. But I can bet, I bet if I went around the room and asked for testimonies to be shared, we could share tremendously difficult moments in our life, and at the time it seemed like things were completely out of control and what on earth is going on. But hindsight, after the fact, we see how God has utilized it to change us. He's made us more fruitful for His kingdom. He's made us more biblical in our approach to things. He's made us more devoutly prayerful. He's united us with other Christians. Our fellowship and unity and community has grown and flourished through the trial. Oh, we need to remember this. God cuts away anything that limits righteousness, and therefore that includes discipline that comes from trials. It comes from suffering and comes from even persecution. Hebrews 12, we are reminded that our Heavenly Father deals with us as as a father does with his children. Just as an earthly father disciplines his children and we respect our father for doing such, shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time it seemed best to them. I love that. As seemed best to them. I so identify with that. There are times when I have disciplined my children in a wrong way. I did it as seemed best to me at the time and after the fact. I was like, oh man, that wasn't the right way to handle that. So I just had to apologize to my kids about that. But with our Heavenly Father, it never just seems best. It is best. He handles us in, a, in accordance with His perfect wisdom. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. He goes on to say, all discipline for the moment. Seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Oh, we can all remember when we were children. I know at the time we didn't feel like we should receive those spankings or those groundings or those consequences. But after that's all done, I look back and I say, thank you, Lord, for giving me parents that were consistent in those ways. Oh, I'm so thankful for parents who loved me enough to discipline me in the way that I needed to be disciplined. And if earthly parents who are far from perfect are engaged in that and we're thankful for it, how much more ought we be thankful when our Heavenly Father, who is all-powerful and all-wise, disciplines us? For we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now, Jesus then inserts this little phrase. He says, already you are clean. You have heard the words, I've spoken to you. You're already clean. Now, that seems kind of like a strange statement inserted here in verse 3. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. But it kind of becomes a little bit more obvious when you see the Greek words here. When Jesus says that the Father's role is either A, to cut off, or to take away, or B, to trim or to cleanse, he uses two different Greek words. But they're both based on the same root. When he says here the father cuts off the dead branches, it's ira. When he talks about the father trimming those branches that are bearing fruit, it's kathirae. Ira is still there. And then when he says, he looks at the disciples and he says, hey, and all of you, you've already been cleansed. The other word there could be translated trimmed or pruned. The word here, kathiroi. He says, you are one who has been cleansed. You are one that has been trimmed. He's What are you doing here? I think he's providing assurance to his disciples. He just got done saying some branches aren't bearing fruit. They're going to be gathered up and thrown into the fire. But you guys guys are among the cleansed. You are among the trimmed. You are part of the group that are producing fruit and you're being pruned even by my very word. It's exceedingly fascinating when you just take a look back. If you look back back at John 13, look at verses 10 and 11. This is Remember, this is when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He had that interesting discussion with Peter. Peter's like, no, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And then Peter's like, well, wash all of me, Lord. And then Jesus is like, no, you're not getting this. <laughs> You've already been cleansed. I'm, all I need to do is wash your feet at this moment. But look at what he says in verse 10. He was bathed and he's only wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, look at, but not all of you. By other words, same word here, clean, catharoi. You are clean, but not all of you. Then next verse. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. At that point when Jesus is saying this, he's washing his disciples' feet. Remember, who's in attendance? Judas Iscariot is still with them. Here in chapter 15, guess what? Judas is gone. And now he looks at all of his men and he says, you guys are all the ones. He's just, I think what he's doing is providing further assurance to his disciples. You are fruit-bearing branches. There are trials and difficulties coming your way. But it's my Father pruning you that you might be more fruitful. I love this because it shows this the tenderness of Jesus. He's a shepherd who loves his children. You know, God doesn't want Christians to be constantly questioning their salvation every day of the week. 1 John is written for this express purpose that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus wants his disciples to be assured of this. You are those who are bearing fruit. There's trials coming for you, but you're clean. You're being trimmed. You're being pruned. Which makes it very evident. Who are the branches? Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Verse 5. Jesus puts forward the metaphor to explain the relationship between him and his father and his disciples. There's a corporate union between the branches, his disciples, and him, Jesus, the vine. Which the father, who is the vine dresser or the gardener, is taking care of and helping with the production of fruit. So while there are many branches, there is a wondrous unity in the one true vine. There's only one vine. There's many branches, but there's only one vine. And that true vine is Jesus. He's the head. He's the root. He's the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the life. He's the provision for the entire church. And the Father is caring for the vine, for it is His Son, and those whom His Son's redemptive work has been applied to. The Father cares for the vine and its branches. Now, having this metaphor firmly in mind, let's consider now Jesus' message. The message. Three things to say here. First of all, okay, so that's that's the metaphor. What does Jesus want us to gain from it? How are we to walk away from this? Well, first of all, He gives a command. He tells them, Abide in Me, And I in you. Now, the initial act of salvation, when a person goes from dead in their sins to alive in Christ, when they go from old man to the new man, when that happens, we can describe that as coming to Jesus. Now, Jesus talks to those who have come to him and he says, abide in me. That might be a word that we use to describe the continued life in Jesus. Jesus. Coming to him is that first perception of that life. Abiding in him is that continued enjoyment, that continued fellowship, that conscious fellowship and union with Jesus. You see, a Christian is what he or she is purely because they draw a continual supply of love, grace, strength, aid, and ability from Jesus. It's not that you were saved through Jesus' work and now you try to work the rest of the Christian life on your own. No, no, no. A Christian continually draws strength and mercy and grace and forgiveness and ability and aid from Jesus. And spiritual fruitfulness is only possible by continual living in Jesus. You can only produce fruit if you're growing organically through communion With Jesus, drinking the water that he gives, eating the food that he provides, being nourished with the nourishment that he gives. Jesus says, without me? I love it. It literally reads, you're not able to do nothing. That sounds really awesome, doesn't it? You're not able to do nothing. It's a Greek construction, which means you're really not able to do anything. That's what he's saying. You're really not able to do anything. The branch cannot bear fruit if it's separated from the vine. No branch has life in itself. The living branch is therefore truly in the vine. And the life of the vine comes into the branch. If the branch is separated from the vine, it has no life. It's incapable of producing fruit. If we're to affect anything of true and everlasting value, this is only possible as we are connected to the source of life, to Jesus. Just as a man cannot enter the kingdom of God apart from being born again, so kingdom work cannot be done except by remaining in Christ. This is one of those laws that there are no exceptions for. Just as it would be so exceedingly odd for a man to break off a branch from a tree and bring it into his house and continue to look at it and stare at it, waiting for it to produce fruit, so it is ridiculous for a person to think they can produce fruit apart from being connected to Jesus. Also note, Jesus did not say, without you I can do nothing. He said, without me you can do nothing. He didn't say, without you I can do nothing. He uses us as instruments, but not because he has to. He uses us because he wants to. He could do his work without us just as well as with us. Yet he has chosen to employ us as instruments by which he does his great work. So we as branches function as branches. We're merely conduits, right? We bear fruit, but the fruit is the production of the vine. We're just a conduit. That's all that we are. We're a place that the fruit develops and grows, but we have no ability to cause fruit to grow apart from the life that the vine provides. You can do nothing apart from Christ. And then we can look at Philippians 4.13. But we can do all things through Christ, who strengthens us. Can I provide a real quick corrective to Philippians 4.13, though I bring it up here and then I just have this urging to just make sure that clarification given. This is this verse has been plastered on everything and has been taken as a promise in all things whatsoever. I remember even. Guys in the weight room putting on more weight on the bar and saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. and watching them fail. Um, so what has just happened there? So here again is a time in which I think contextual reading is so important. And while I'm thankful for the verses and the chapter distinctions that happen in the Bible, they're helpful for us looking at a particular verse. This is one of those times when you take out a verse from its context and you plant it on the bumper sticker or you put it somewhere else. Sometimes we start to lose the surrounding context. And I think Philippians 4.13 is a wonderful wonderful verse, but read it in context. What is Paul saying? He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but he's explaining how it is possible for him to be content in whatever circumstance he finds himself in. He says, whether I have an abundance or I suffer need, the question is coming to him is, how can you maintain such joy in the midst of this how is it possible? How can you write this letter from prison? How can you write these things and tell us to rejoice? How can you do that? When you're, when you're suffering in such a way, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He credits his grasp on contentment as due to the strength that God provides him through Christ when he was faced with circumstances that were outside of his control. The application of this verse is much more direct to a situation like one of the following. A child has just discovered that his or her parents are getting a divorce and wonders how he or she is going to make it through. A man has just received news that he's been laid off from work and he wonders how he's going to provide for his family. A woman just receives news that she's been diagnosed with breast cancer and only has months to live. How do such individuals persevere under such circumstances? Circumstances outside of their control. How do they show contentment and joy in the midst of things like that? They can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. They'll bring these things to the Lord. They'll lay them before His feet. They'll trust in His sovereign will. They'll ask God for supernatural strength. They'll utter words of the promise. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, a branch that is dwelling in Christ, made its home in Jesus, has his life flowing through them. And so they quite literally say, as Paul did, it's not because I'm great, it's because he's great. It's his life living in me that allows me to respond this way. I couldn't do these things. But through Christ who strengthens me, I can do all things. What does it mean to live in Jesus? How do we do that? Give us command. Live in Jesus. Dwell in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Make Jesus your home. Okay, those are all really like great little things. But what did it look like? What, like? The practical, like, what do I do? How does that play itself out in my life? Here's a few things that Jesus gives us in this text. First of all, those who abide in Jesus, abide in his words. We abide in his words. We live in Jesus by listening to his words. Deuteronomy 8.3, Jesus even quotes this. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. How do we receive nourishment? By listening to God's word. We abide in Jesus by listening to God's word. Abiding in Jesus' words means intentionally bringing them to mind. It means meditating upon the Scriptures. It means trusting His promises. It means considering His example, keeping His precepts, seeking to apply His words to life. And when we constantly commune with God through His Word, its contents become lodged in our hearts. And it becomes in the ground for our affections and thinking and decision-making changing fruit of attending to Jesus' words is that we become more and more like Him. So living in Jesus means listening, attending to, carefully focusing upon Jesus' words. Secondly, it means living in His commands, abiding by His commands. We live in Jesus by obeying Him. So we listen to Him and we obey Him. Living a life in accordance with Jesus' commands grows out of a mind that has taken every thought captive and brought it into the obedience of Christ. It comes out of a mind that's been renewed in such a way that it seeks out what is good and acceptable and perfect in the will of God, Romans 12. You see, obedience to Christ is a supernatural product of Jesus' word. First of all, regenerating your heart. Second of all, renewing your mind. Third of all, transforming your affections and forth, conforming your will. Your heart is regenerated. Your mind is renewed. Your affections are changed. You love him. You love his word. You joyfully obey him, which then just naturally then shows itself then in the decisions that you make day in and day out. Just as it is a natural consequence for branches that are connected to a living vine to produce fruit, so a true disciple connected to Jesus The giver of life will supernaturally produce fruit. One who abides in Christ seeks to let his commands guide his actions and rule his daily conduct. Careful clarification. It's not that obedience earns one's right to abide in the vine. No. That's flipping this thing around the wrong way. It's the fact that if you abide in the vine, this will produce an obedience as an inescapable consequence. In logic class here at Orca, we teach two valid hypothetical syllogisms that find a good application here. Two Latin phrases to describe them. You have modus ponens and modus tollens. They both go like this. If P, then Q. P, therefore Q. You can put anything you want into that. Thing for, and in this case, let's put it this way. If you abide in the vine, then you will obey. You abide in the vine. Therefore, you'll obey. That works. You also work The other way, Modus Tollens, and this goes like this. If P, then Q. Not Q. Therefore, not P. We read like this. Again, same setup. If you abide in the vine, then you will obey. You don't obey. Therefore, you're not in the vine we can rephrase the hypothetical syllogism like that by saying all the ones abiding in the vine obey so if you don't obey you are not one abiding in the vine remember obedience doesn't get you into the vine but being abiding in the vine produces obedience what's the third thing how do we dwell in Jesus we abide in his love We dwell in His love. We can live in Jesus by living in His love. To dwell in Him is to abide in His love. Note this. We don't focus on our own poor, pitiful, fickle love. We dwell upon His consistent, never giving up, in the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, never giving up, always and forever love. The love which is the same yesterday, today, and forever That love which surpasses knowledge. Jesus says, I love you as the Father has loved me. Jesus loves us as the Father loves Him. And we're told that He loved us first. 1 John 4, 19, we love because He first loved us. And then Jesus says, this is how you remain in my love. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. How do we... Abide in His love. How do we live in His love? By keeping His commandments. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus says, do what I have done. I abide in my Father's love by obeying Him. You can abide in my love by obeying me. 1 John 2, 6. The one who says he abides in himself ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. You can't say that you're abiding in Jesus' love and refuse to obey His commands. can't do it. You say, no, I won't do what Jesus has told me to do. Then you're not abiding in his love. To live in his love is to obey his commands. It is therefore proper for Christians to pursue holiness. We're commanded to be holy as he is holy. We should never be ashamed of diligently pursuing godliness. That means even when Christians around us are saying, oh, you're being too particular about pursuing God." No, we should never be ashamed of pursuing godliness, pursuing holiness, taking care to avoid worldliness, giving great care to obey God's commands. This is not legalism. This is the product of experiencing God's grace. We've been forgiven, and now we're experiencing God's love, and experiencing and abiding and living in Jesus' love is seen in obeying His commandments. Obedience is the product of being saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And as obedience marks the reality of our love, it is also true that love is the wellspring of obedience. So obedience shows that we truly love Him. But where does the obedience come from? From loving Him. (laughs) Love is the wellspring of obedience. Love is manifested by the obedience But the obedience is motivated by the love. Jesus' love motivated him to obey his Father and offer himself as a sacrifice in our place. But the sacrifice that Jesus made proved his love. Get it? His love motivated the sacrifice, but the sacrifice proves the love. Similarly, our obedience proves we love Jesus. But what motivates the obedience? Love. Hendrickson said, his love was operating during every instant of our exercise of love. His love precedes our love. His love accompanies our love. His love follows our love. In the process of doing this, creates more love toward him in our hearts, so that, as it were, another love cycle begins, this one being even better than the first. You see, as we love him and obey him, there's more love and more obedience, and the cycle continues. And just as Jesus was delighted to do His Father's will, so will our obedience be sweet and cheerful. word that my mom used to use and we use at our house, talk to our kids about having happy hearts. Happy hearts, right? Doing obedience out of cheerfulness and joy. The commandments of God are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. This is how discipleship is proven. Jesus says, and therefore, verse 8, and so prove to be my disciples. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Men don't gather figs from thorns. They don't pick grapes from a briar bush. Luke six forty four. Being made disciples, remember, we're made disciples by Christ's work. And being then attached to Jesus, we become more and more his disciples through obedience. This is kind of how this works. Our obedience proves who or what we are. You can only obey because he's first done a work in your heart. But disciples are followers of Christ. Followers of Christ follow Christ. That's what they do. If you're a disciple, you're one that follows Christ. How can you say you're a disciple and you don't obey him? How can you say you're a disciple but you're not being discipled by him? How can you say you're following Jesus and you're not following Jesus? Those who have been attached to the vine show their true discipleship through further discipleship. What's the result of rejection? Those who reject all of this, we're told in verse 4, there's no fruit from them. Verse 6, they're thrown away, they're withered and dried up, they're gathered together, and they're thrown into fire and burned. Sounds very similar to me, Matthew 13, where the parable of the tares where there's tares growing up in the midst of a good crop. And they want to go out and get all the tares out, but the Lord says, the Master says, No, you, you're not going to go out there because when you go out there to tear out the tares, <laughs> when you pull out the tares, you're going to destroy some of the good stuff. So leave it all until harvest. Then we'll harvest it all and we'll separate it all at the end. It has the same sort of picture here. They'll be gathered together and thrown out into the furnace of fire, and that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Quite a consequence for not being in. The true vine what's though the reward for remaining what's the reward for remaining i come back to those three things i mentioned at the beginning faithfulness confidence and joy what's reward or fruitfulness i'm sorry confidence and joy what is the reward for remaining fruitfulness good works are rightly called the work of a believer yet all the glory rightly is due jesus for without him nothing could be produced we can bear much fruit only by vital union with jesus And he makes us even more fruitful. Let me just challenge you with this. Jesus says that bearing much fruit is a consequence of being united to him, abiding in him, dwelling in him. So, what is the chief reason why people suffer from not being very fruitful? I think many people have answered that question by saying, well, the church has to have more programs. We need to have more ministries. We have more stuff that we're doing. We need to be more active, more busy. It seems that Jesus' answer to the question is, we need to be more diligent about our communion with Him. Fruitfulness is the necessary consequence of dwelling in Christ, living and abiding in Him. A.W. Pink says, Thousands of Christians fail to trace their barrenness to its right source, the meagerness of their communion with Christ. Consequently, they seek fruitfulness in activities often right in themselves but which when he is unrecognized can neither yield can never yield any fruit so how is your relationship with jesus by this i'm not asking you right now to on your piece of paper there in front of you to fill out a statement of faith and make sure that you ascribe to sound doctrine although that is important although what you believe is definitely important what i mean by the question is When's the last time you've had a heart-to-heart with Jesus about your relationship with Him? Ask these questions. Ask these questions between yourself and the Lord. Are you abiding in Him? Is Jesus your life? Do you find times of solitude with Him sweet to your soul? Are there things that are dry in your relationship with Him? Have you been spending more time doing than abiding? Have you been substituting more service rather than loving relationship with Him, sometimes we can get so wrapped up in doing that we trick ourselves into believing that we're fruitful just because we're really busy. I preach this to myself, my dear friends. Real fruitfulness arises from relationship with Jesus, from abiding in Him. Don't mistake busyness for true fruitfulness. Second thing, reward, confidence in prayer. We're told in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is so great. You see, the one whose heart and mind and will have been transformed through union with Jesus, because you've been attending to his words, as we talked about, you've been obeying his commands, and you've been living in his love, all things we just talked about, what it means to abide in him, then you're going to see this further benefit. Such a one will experience great effectiveness in prayer. Because your heart and mind desire the things that God desires. It's a wonderful confidence that attends to the prayers of one who knows that he makes requests in keeping with what God desires. What is, what is the key to an effective prayer life? Intimacy with Jesus. There it is. What's the key to an effective prayer life? Intimacy with Jesus. Living in his love, obeying his commands. This is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, 1 John 5.14. A child will come to a parent with apprehension rather than confidence if the child is not sure whether or not the parent's in a giving mood, right? They might choose which parent they come to, depending on what they think about the giving mood of the parent. Or they don't know if it's something that, that they're asking for or something that the parent will be pleased to give. But if you know what you're coming with is something that a parent would love to give to you and you know that they're able to give it to you and you know that there's someone who loves to give those things, then you can come with complete confidence. Effectiveness in prayer comes through communion and relationship with Jesus. The more we know Him, the more we know that He delights to give good gifts to His children and the more that we know what He desires, we'll ask in accordance with what He desires and there will be great confidence in our prayers. You see both service and prayerfulness all tied to union with Jesus, living and dwelling in Him. Again, why is there so little prayer in our day? Again, it's not because we need more programs and more organizations. It's that we need more close communion with Jesus. Prayer is the product of relationship with Jesus. It's a good test for all of us. When prayer dries up, check your relationship with Jesus close relationship with Jesus pushes forward prayer. And all of this results in our Father being glorified. Verse 8, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God the Father is glorified by a fruitful life, by a prayerful life. And last of all, we experience Jesus' joy. Look at verse 11. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. He says that the result of all of this is we'll enter communion with Him in His joy. And our joy will be completed. Our joy will be fulfilled. Remember, contextually, He's dealing with disciples who are troubled and struggling with this. They're filled with sorrow. Jesus says He wants them to experience Inner delight, inexpressible joy. He wants his disciples to know deep, filling, complete joy and satisfaction. It's one of the biggest lies of Satan that he's told people that in obeying God, that's actually a drudgery. It's quite the opposite. Obeying God is where there is true joy and true happiness without regret, without sorrow. What Satan throws out there in temptation is a cheap counterfeit. And it does not lead to true and completed joy. Spurgeon said God made human beings as he made his other creatures to be happy. They're capable of happiness, they're in their right element when they're happy. And now that Jesus Christ has come to restore the ruins of the fall, he has come to bring back to us the old joy only it shall be even sweeter and deeper than it could have been if we had never lost it. That's what's so amazing is that God's marvelous plan of redemption is such that he increases our joy even through the tremendous and crazy struggle in the meantime. Jesus has already said that he gives his peace to his disciples. In this passage he says, experience my love, dwell and my love, and now here he says, you're going to have my joy. You'll experience my joy, and my joy will be a completed joy, a fulfilled joy in you. Calvin explains what this completed joy might be. He says, it's not that believers will be entirely free of all sadness, but that the ground for joy will be far greater, so that no dread, no anxiety, no grief will swallow them up. For those to whom it's been given to glory in Christ will not be prevented either by life or by death or by distress from bidding defiance to sadness. It's not that we don't experience sadness. It's not that we don't experience trials and grief and anxiety. It's just that the joy is much deeper. The joy is much more solid. So no matter how shaky life gets, there's a solidness to our joy. And this is only found in obedience to God. something impossible for us to attain apart from grace. We can't obey apart from grace. We need grace to forgive our sins We need grace to empower present obedience and we need grace for that blessed day when sin will be completely done away with and it will be absent altogether from the new heavens and new earth. Check this when it comes to joy. Oftentimes a Christian's joy is not sapped so much by trials and difficulties that come their way. I think the quickest way to losing joy in the Christian life is sin. Sin is what joy. David, when he asked the Lord to restore, he asked the Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. No, he didn't, he didn't doubt his salvation. He asked the Lord to restore the joy of his salvation. This is following most likely his sin with Bathsheba. He didn't lose his salvation, but the joy of it had been lost with him. Remember when Peter denied Jesus three times, he went out and wept bitterly. He didn't cease from being Jesus' disciple, but until Jesus restored him, he experienced pain and sorrow. You see, this is what's so beautiful, though, is while sin does affect our joy in the Lord, the Lord has a means by which we can be forgiven and restored again. And I commit to you to read Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, you'll read there this week that when an individual keeps silent about their sin... Their body wastes away through groaning all day long. He goes on to say, my vitality and strength were drained away as the fever heat of summer. But then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I didn't hide. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. I wish to close with these practical lessons for you. Five things. First of all, beware of attempting to achieve fruitfulness apart from abiding in Christ. Ask the Lord to evaluate your heart, to search your motives and actions. Are you replacing devotional time with busyness? Are you producing true and lasting fruit Is it the real deal? Secondly, learn to value the pruning that God the Father does. Be thankful that He's working toward your sanctification and your further fruitfulness. Ask the Lord to prepare you to receive those times of pruning and trials as good and from His hand. Third, Are you seeing your life flourish in obedience to Jesus? Are you taking great care to obey the directives and commands of God, knowing that doing so leads to your joy and His glory? Don't be ashamed of pursuing holiness with fervency. God calls you to be holy as He is. Just remember that holiness is the fruit of deep dwelling in Jesus. Fourthly, Are you finding joy in the midst of all circumstances? Are you combating worry and anxiety with trust in God's promises and the assurance of His sovereignty? Are you abiding in His love? Are you depending upon His care? Are you entering into His joy? Fifth, Do you truly believe that God desires you to experience fullness of joy? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that God desires for you to experience fullness of joy? And let me be very clear here. Not based on creaturely definitions of happiness, but God's definition of happiness. He says where you will find true happiness, true joy, is obeying me. Not obeying Oprah. Not obeying anybody else. Obeying me. If so, you'll submit to whatever He withholds from you as being for your joy and you'll do whatever He commands you to do as being for your joy. Obedience promotes not only God's glory, but it promotes your highest delight and your highest welfare. He just exhorts all of us to abide in Him. So even though while we're awaiting our future homecoming, this is not our home, we're waiting for our final home, you can experience home if you're diligent to dwell in Christ. Because the reason why heaven is heaven is it's where Jesus is. So experience that now. Dwell in Jesus now. Home is where the Lord is. Rest in Him. Be thankful to Him. Because if you're in Him, you'll spend all of eternity with Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this morning and the reminder of the importance of our relationship with Jesus Please correct us when we start to substitute even Christian ministry in place of vibrant relationship with You. May ministry be an outflowing of the love that we experience in communion with You. Lord, I pray also that You would help us to have a right understanding of obedience. Certainly, we are not saved by our obedience, but by Christ's by what Christ has done on our behalf, His perfect righteousness, His death and His resurrection. But having been saved and by Your grace, You've also by Your grace empowered us to live lives that result in Your glory and further fruitfulness and confidence in prayer. So I pray that our lives would demonstrate those very things that we would dwell richly and deeply in Jesus. Thank You for using us as conduits. We Not necessary to your plan, but you have chosen to use us as part of your plan. And we thank you. We ask that you be glorified through our church here in this area and through your church all across the world. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.